Boom. Welcome, everybody. Um, this is Real Drug Talk, and I'm Jack Nagel. And happy Love Day, the 14th of February um, on Sunday. Now, when I check the stats, I hope everybody is listening to this on Monday, not on Sunday, and you're out enjoying Love Day with your partner or doing whatever you want to do. Um, but if you're not, welcome, and we've got a good show for t- for you today, you sad, miserable people. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Bit of black humor, bit of fun. Um, but today we actually have a really cool show or what I think is a really cool show, not because it's kind of flipped on its script and I'm the one being interviewed in this show, but just who it, with, who it is with, which is a guy called Paul Taylor. I was on his podcast, which I'm just going to bring up here because I always mix it up the wrong way around, which is the Mind Body Brain Project. Um so this was just an all-round great interview and I'm actually going to have Paul um, on my show, I think, down the track just to talk about a few things that intertwine with recovery and all the stuff that he does. But uh, this guy is amazing. He's kind of bordering on a bit of a fucking lunatic <laughs> um, slash, you know, inspiring kind of genius dude. Um, uh, yeah, and he's just... Every time I speak to him, I just walk out of the conversation thinking, fuck, that's an awesome guy. I can do more with my life. Um, yeah, so so just a quick background on Paul, if you don't know who he is, but he's um, an international speaker um, and he is a neuroscientist. Um, he's served in the British uh, Naval Services. Um, he has also done ayahuasca deep in the Amazons. Um, he's a boxer. He, um, yeah, he's a super interesting guy, right? Um, and he has a really awesome um, company called um, the Mind Body Brain Institute, I think it's called. And he also has a really top-notch podcast now called the Mind Body brain project um and i was talking to him about it and only paul could achieve this (laughs) um but he's done like 20 shows last year and it was um or six i think he said 15 or 16 shows last year um and it got up into the top 20 charts of the apple podcast so um what I'm trying to say is that he's just a super interesting guy, talks to super interesting people and just has an all-round great podcast. So today we've got my show um, with him on his podcast, but I just highly recommend that you go over there, um, listen to everything that he does, um, follow his podcast, listen to his stuff. Um, he does a lot of stuff in the corporate space and speaking and all that and he's and he's really unbelievable at it. Um, one of the best I've ever seen really. So um, yeah, uh, excited to introduce you to him if you haven't um, uh, heard of Paul Taylor before. Uh, and um, yeah, just enjoy the show. Any feedback that you have on the show would be really awesome. We're trying to find the sweet spot. We're getting more and more people listening to this now. Um, and we just want to provide the shows and content that really, uh, you know, provide the most value and support and help to you guys. Um, and yeah, without further ado, let's jump into the show. Peace. Jack Nagel, welcome to the Mind Body Brain Project podcast and welcome to being the inaugural one that we're videoing. I'm going to stick it up on.
So you're the first, mate. Love it. No, good to be here and happy to be the first. I, um, I've actually been listening and I, I enjoyed the show, so excited to be on. Excellent. So, mate, tell the listeners about your personal journey. We're going to talk about drugs. We're going to talk about addiction. Uh, and and you um, run treatment programs, but you have a personal history which gives you authenticity. Can you just go into your journey into and out of drugs for us? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I, I always, it's a long story, so I always give the, the three-minute highlight reel um, or low light reel, I might say. Um, <laughs> But um, so so look, I it probably helps to paint the picture. Um, I come from like a very middle class um, family, south and southeast suburbs of Melbourne. Um, had everything I ever needed, maybe not everything I ever wanted. Um, was kind of um six foot six, um, and yeah, naturally gifted with some sporting ability. So hated school, but was always playing sport. Um, love. Oh, still love it, but loved AFL footy, but broke my jaw when I was 12 in a game. Um, and that put me off for the winter. And then my jaw fixed and it got into the summer and I started playing basketball. Um, at that stage, basketball was a, mainly a summer sport. And um, yeah, I, uh, I, I probably didn't like it as much as footy, but was better at it. Um, and because I was tall, uh, you know, I've always been tall. And yeah, the the kind of, for lack of a better word, the scouts at the rep teams pulled me in quickly and I, I got good quick um, and was very lucky. But I suppose while that was all going on, um, I always was kind of, you know, lured towards alcohol and drugs. My friendship group from primary school and high school um, were were always messing around drinking, you know, the normal stuff that kids do, yeah. smoking dope, um, all that stuff. And when I reflect on it in hindsight, one of the big things for me, um, there was a couple of things going on. So I think within my personality, I've got that real sort of like all or nothing kind of thing going on. And I know that we've talked about that before. You, you sort of have that as well. Um, and, you know, I tend to apply that approach to everything in my life. So what happened was when I was playing basketball um, as a junior, it, as you're going through those teenage years, it's actually pretty kind of, it's like bordering on professional. I was literally playing every day, morning and night, and I didn't really have much of like a teenage life, you know, and I really actually longed for that and missed out on it. So anytime I did actually get a break from basketball, um, and I did have the odd Saturday night off here or there, I would go out and I would go for it, you know, and mix in that kind of FOMO and the, and the you know, extreme personality. I would just like do a number on myself. Um, and every time I did it, I absolutely loved it. You know, I didn't know it at the time, but it, it you know, it really did just kind of take me out of me and helped me to feel okay within myself. Again, I couldn't put language to it back then, but that's what it was doing for me. Um, so I just wanted to do it all the time. So flash forward, when I was 17, um, just to give everyone an idea, it's kind of embarrassing to say, but um, yeah, like I, who knows whether I would have made it pro or anything, but I definitely was kind of in the mix or had the opportunities to try and put myself in the right positions. Um Andrew Gaze was my coach. We'd just been to America for a um, for a tour, um, playing all the schools over there. Um, and I experienced my first detox on the plane. I was smoking um, uh, dope every day. 
um, for maybe a year or something. It wasn't having any effect on my performance or anything, but it was starting to change the way that I thought about myself and the world. Um, and yeah, I had my first detox on the plane um, and just hated it. Never wanted that to happen again. And, and when I got back from that trip, um, I just got off the plane and said, I don't want to do this anymore and gave up everything. And that shocked everyone. And everyone was really worried about me because it was really out of character. So gave, gave up the basketball or the drugs? Gave up, gave, gave up basketball. Yeah. Yeah. Which was kind of my life for you know four or five years. Um, and again, yeah, had some opportunities going there. So it was quite out of character and um just proceeded to want to go out and just be a normal teenager and have fun or what I thought that version of, of that was for me. Um, and unfortunately for me, um, things just progressed really, really quickly. Um, and my life kind of spun out of control. I didn't, I, yeah. What were you going to say? Was there, was there a point, was there a, a um, was it a point or was it a drug? Yeah. That precipitated that spiral. So, so for me, it started just like partying hard and I was doing all the typical kind of drugs, you know, using MDMA or ecstasy, um, you know, LSD, stuff like that, um, drinking heaps. Slowly, I moved into speed and I was probably getting a little bit more into that typical kind of addiction phase there. Right. And then for me, when it all blew to pieces was that from the speed, I moved into using ice or meth. Um, and yeah, that like once, once I got onto that, my life just completely hit the skids. Um, and I just turned into a completely different person, you know, um, as I said, I was already kind of addicted and things were going a little bit haywire, but once I started using, um, ice and meth, it just smashed my life to bits. So, um, I went from that kind of happy go lucky, um, young guy to, just trying to get on every day. Um, and probably six months into that, I just completely hated myself. Didn't want to be doing what I was doing anymore. Um, I had my, my first, my mum was worried about me. My first job was a carpet layer, believe it or not, at six foot six, stupid <laughs> job. Um, and uh, we actually we actually had a job at, we were laying the carpet at the um, the, the Collingwood Holden Centre, believe it or not. Um, and I, I had the key for the job and I just didn't get up one morning and I got fired. And it was like the best and worst thing that ever happened to me because um, at the time I had so much, I was getting so much money working cash in hand, which was a lot for me back then. A thousand bucks when you were like, you know, 17 years old is, is, a, is 18, 19 is a bit. Um, and I was just spending it all on drugs. And then all of a sudden I had no money. Um, right. And I got really desperate and, and things started to go really bad because I had this big habit um, and then I had nothing, you know. Um, and um, all the typical stuff came in, petty crime, ripping off my family, all that sort of stuff. Um, and, yeah, look, it got pretty it got pretty sad, really. So um, just to give everyone a, a, a picture, I was – when I checked into rehab at 21, I was 62 kilos. Um, I, six uh, foot six. Wow. For six foot six, yeah. I remember they put me on um, food supplements at the rehab <laughs> um, because, like, I was struggling to kind of eat because I wasn't eating properly um, right. when I was using and my digestive system was just fucked. Um, and I could not stomach a lot of food, but I needed to put weight on. I was in psychosis all the time. Um, so, 
yeah, talking, to, like literally talking to myself, walking down the street. And I remember being in rehab, being really scared that that wouldn't go away and that I was going to be kind of stuck like that forever. Um, and I was suicidal. So I'd had several suicide attempts. Um, yeah, yeah, one where I'd kind of woken up in in hospital um, and, you know, I'd been revived and died a couple of times. Um, so, yeah, my life was just crazy. And I guess there's lots of stories in that. And I'll probably tell the one where I admitted you know, that I was messed up and I needed help because, you know, that's a, that's, that's one that paints the picture, but just to give everyone an idea of how like powerful my addiction was, I was hanging out with these people um, at that time that, you know, like crims or petty crims and their house was like a chemist and I was off my head one night and yeah, I decided that, you know, that was it. I was going to end it. Um, and I just took a whole lot of prescription drugs and, um yeah drunk a whole a whole lot of alcohol and i i think i like choked on it um and they apparently they found me in the morning like with the frothing at the mouth like i don't know like choked on the pills they freaked out carried me out left me in the alley um out the back of their house i was incredibly lucky um somebody in the public was just walking past it was like the morning and they saw me in the alley and they called the ambulance um, yeah, and I got picked up in the ambulance and I, I got, that was the time I got revived. Um, and, and what happened though, that spins me out about that story is that you'd think for most people that would make you go, holy fuck, maybe at least for like a day you'd go, all right, I've got to stop doing what I was doing, you know? Mm. But I got up out of the bed straight away. As soon as I was conscious and I was just like, I just need to get on. Like, I just couldn't be in me and. And the devastating bit of that for me was that uh, I got straight up, checked out of the hospital. They kind of give you a cab charge if you want to go. Um, I was in the hospital gown and I got the cab straight back to those people that had left me to die in the alley because I knew they had drugs. And I, remember, and I remember walking away from that situation. And that was like, funnily enough, that was like the first time where I went, this is fucked. There's something going wrong in my <laughs> life. Not quite right. <laughs> And I just and I just hated myself, but that wow. didn't stop me. You know, I just went on for another um, nearly year after that um, until I, yeah, I finally um, hit the point where I I was just broken one day. I'd, I'd used I'd it was a lot for me back then as well. But I'd I'd rip someone off. I'm not a tough guy at all. I'm a big teddy bear, and I'd ripped off a drug dealer for about seven k. Um, spent it all um, in about a week lost my mind went completely mad um that's a fair bit of meth um and i uh yeah everything was completely mayhem in my life and then i got dropped off at the train station i i can remember at the time i had shorts um and it was freezing in winter and i went to buy a big m because i was starving and uh I, I went to pull out money from my pocket i didn't even have five bucks to pay for the big m and i just i don't know it was weird it, it just broke me it right. just broke me and I and I um I went home to mum's where I'd been kicked out of and um she finally let me into the house and um I walked up to the mirror and looked at myself in the mirror and it was really sounds really cliche but my life kind of flashed before my eyes and I just kind of saw that I'd gone from this happy-go-lucky young guy um to you know your stereotypical kind of junkie really um and I just went you know, um, this is it. I need help. And I asked, I asked for help and went to rehab and, and that's kind of where my life 
turned around really mm. yeah Mm. And, and and mate, now you've come out the other side, and 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 you're a champion for for getting the drug message out there, and and actually um, running rehab programs yourself, right? Yeah, that's right. So what happened for me was that I um, I was always one of those people that even though I had all the basketball and stuff, and I thought I wanted to be a sports star, never really kind of knew what I really wanted to do. I never really felt super passionate about anything, but. The cool thing that happened to me when I went to rehab was that the people there, um, they were trained professionals, but they had all been through addiction. Mm. And I'd reached out for help through different services and stuff before and just never really felt like I connected with anyone or anything like that. Um, but that, but when I was at this rehab, it was profound. Like I remember this guy intimately describing to me how he was thinking and feeling when he was using drugs. And I was like, oh my God, that's exactly how I think and feel. And I've never heard anyone talk like that before. And it just, it, it gave me like a profound psychological and emotional shift, you know, like imagine like a penny drop moment times 20, you know, it was just, it just was enough to turn the ship around inside of me to go, maybe I can, maybe something can be different. Maybe I can change. Um, and so that inspired me and I've been doing that ever since now to go, well, I want to do the same thing. You know, I want to use my experience to, to try and help other people. Um, and yeah, I've done lots of stuff over the years with rehabs and, and different stuff like that. So, yeah. I, I mean, we'll get into that um, a little bit later on. So, but I want to talk now about um, addiction, right? So, and when we say addiction, <laughs> you know, we're talking about drugs, but we're also talking about alcohol addiction, gaming addiction, shopping, sex, pornography, yeah. all of those things. In your opinion, um, is it a disease or is so, it a personality issue? It's a great, it's a great, um, it's a great question. And I cop a lot of heat for this because I've transformed and evolved over the years. Um, right now, like I would say, no, it's not a disease, right? But um, a lot of it is semantics as well. There's, there's definitely, there's definitely like a, um, like a, you know, a physical reaction or a biochemical reaction that's happening in your body when you use too many drugs and alcohol that sets it off. But um, my my problem with the disease kind of concept now is that um, I don't think once you kind of move into it, like, I don't think that you're stuck with it forever. You know, like I, I no longer refer to myself as like an addict, you know, I, I don't be, like, I don't believe that's me forever. Um, and I think that if you constantly reinforce those things to yourself, then you become that, you know, because really. Because like, alcoholics have been through, um, what is it? Triple A. They say that you're, you're always an addict, right? So, so that's you, right. you don't agree that's with that. I, I don't agree with that. And, and, but, but in saying that when I went to rehab, um, I, the, the place that I, that I went to taught um, the disease of addiction model um, and it really fucking helped me, you know, right. because when I was at that point, I was full of guilt and shame and I think it's a good step. I don't think it's a super bad thing to, to talk to people in a, in that framework, but um, I was able to see it as something that was happening outside of me and like a medical condition, you know, um, and something that I wasn't completely in control of, which made sense to me because I felt like that. 
Um, and I just couldn't believe what I had done and, you know, how my life had played out, you know. Uh, so to be told that it was a disease really helped me just to go, well, this is actually a medical condition. This is something that's kind of happening to me, like other medical conditions. And now um, I'm not responsible for all that stuff. But what I am responsible for is like my recovery and managing it and taking control of it. So I think that is a really good aspect. Um but when, you know, that understanding that I have now, it's, it's a really heavily debated topic in, in our space. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, the, the, all the research is really inconclusive. Um, they're not, they're definitely not 100% sure. You can get the leading um, addiction professors in the world um, that are on both sides of the spectrum yeah. um, that can put together a really good argument that's backed by evidence and all that stuff um, and say that it is a disease or it isn't a disease. Um, but I don't think it's a personality failing either. You know, mm. I think, I think our, I think the conversation around drugs and alcohol in general, but addiction too has to really kind of mature. And we have to understand that it's a complex issue. You know, there's a series of, um, events and circumstances that are going into making someone become dependent or addicted. Um, and it's not just like a one size fits all approach. You know, some people it's trauma, you know, there's a, there's a great guy who I'm sure you're probably aware of Gabor Mate, who talks amazingly about trauma and how that impacts people into addiction and other mental health problems. Um, there's, you know, stuff around like social learning theory. Um, there's awesome, yeah, neuroscience, which I know you're aware of, um, that kind of explains the pleasure system in the brain, all that sort of stuff. So, um, no, I don't think it is, but I think it is close to right. the way that, that there's elements of that model that are true. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think the, the neuroscience is quite interesting for those who maybe aren't familiar with it is to do with reward pathways in the brain and mm. to do with certain neurotransmitters and, and as you say, the pleasure system. So every drug, no matter what drug it is, acts on a neurotransmitter that we produce endogenously, right? So mm. cannabis works on your cannabinoid receptor, opium, those sort of heroin works on the opiate receptor, cocaine works on the serotonin receptor, other ones work directly on the dopamine receptor. But all of them ultimately end up raising dopamine as well. And, and, and when you get ahead of drugs, just like when there's anything pleasurable, whether it's ice cream, whether it's sex, whether it's achievement, there's a head of dopamine that is released from your ventral tegmental area. It floods into your frontal lobes and it goes, that felt good. Do yeah. it again, right? And this is the thing that, that – Dopamine isn't just about pleasure, but it's about goal-directed behavior. And, yeah. and some of those drugs that, that we were talking about, they raise, you know, if we really eat bland food, um, you get a reward from it, right? Your basal yeah. dopamine, I think Nora Volkoff showed this, raises about 100%, right? And if you eat yeah. really palatable foods like Krispy Kreme donut, ice cream, burgers, those sorts of things, if you love them, you know, your dopamine will raise 150%. And nicotine will raise at 200, 250%. So will morphine. Amphetamine's about a thousand percent. But it's also with these drugs, it's the speed of delivery to the That's brain, right. right? Which is why smoking cocaine and smoking any drug 
makes it much more addictive than if you snort it. Because if you smoke it, it goes straight from your lungs into the brain and it has an impact within 10 or 15 seconds, right? So it's interesting neuroscience behind the addictive potential of Mm -hmm. certain drugs and other behaviors. But one of the interesting things, and we've talked about this before, is 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 a pretty famous psychologist, Bruce Alexander, uh, who created a whole rat model that, that is often used for right? and yeah. they have these rats, they're in cages they have access to two bottles, one has water the other has cocaine and he repeated it with heroin and yeah. rats will, once they taste it they will repeatedly um, drink the cocaine or the heroin until they collapse and sometimes have an overdose right? and he could yeah. show the changes in the brain, hence that whole model But he later, which a lot of people don't talk about, um, repeated the experiment on rat, uh, what he called rat park, I think it was. So this awesome environment for rats where there's other rats in there. There's lots of cool (laughs) things to climb over, play over, lots of stuff for play, which rats love. And they would have the same bottles in there. And and most of them would just drink, drink water. And some of them took the cocaine or heroin, but they used it spurring. That yeah. I kind of I think reinforces the idea that it's not just an addiction model because if it was, then those rats would have got addicted as well, right? But, but yeah. they didn't. So there's a whole social stuff that goes into it. A hundred percent. And and this is where it kind of becomes complex um, and interesting. You know, so even though leading professionals and things like that all disagree about, you know, the technical models of addiction and all that stuff, whether it's this, whether it's that, when you talk to most people that have struggled with, um, or I would say 100% of the people that have struggled with addiction problems, they will always talk about this kind of void or, um, you know, hole that alcohol and drugs filled, you know, um, and, or, or whatever it is. Numbing, food, right? the numbing. The, that's right. That's right. And and when you take someone through a process of treatment, yes, there is phases, but getting someone actually physically off the drugs and alcohol is like a pull thing of the percent of the hard bit that you need to help them to work through. You know, the, the real um, meat and potatoes is working on, you know, the underlying psychological and emotional issues that uh, basically that manifest as a result of addiction or are there prior to the addiction. So when I say that, that doesn't necessarily, it can be these things, but it doesn't necessarily mean horrific traumas and stuff like that. It it just means like it can be negative belief systems, negative behavioural patterns, um, and, and, you know, um, negative emotional patterns as well. And, you know, people needing to learn how to process things differently, all that sort of stuff. Resilience is something that's been talked about a lot, which I know that you've done a lot of work on as well in terms of addiction. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. And, um, you know, really when you kind of get down to it, um, I always say to people, it's kind of, it's a bit funny. A lot of people don't like to think about it this way, but I'm, I'm never helping someone to get uh, over their addiction. I'm helping them to feel like worthwhile, you know, and interesting. 
it sounds it sounds really funny to people and some people almost have like a visceral visceral reaction to it when you tell them that um you know we work with a lot of like successful people now that don't have any of like the stereotypical life events that you know you might see on the tv with someone that has an addiction but they but they have just as bad drug and alcohol use as those people um and when you kind of take them through the process and you really narrow it down, there's all this stuff going on underneath the surface. So when you get the internal conditions right, the connection to self, the connection to others and the environment, help people to find, you know, a purpose and you know, meaning in their life, then then the addiction kind of transcends itself. Really. Um, yeah. And and this is why we just need to start having a bit of a different conversation about addiction and and yeah, bring it into a bit more of a mature realm. I think because yeah, it doesn't it doesn't fit the typical way that we've been approaching it. Yeah, and the the I guess the other interesting thing is that you know there are some people, and particularly the people who are very anti drugs and alcohol, will say yeah. that people are doing it; they're just numbing and they're trying to fill a void. There is the other element in, in it that drugs and alcohol can be to 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 use, and the experiences generally are, are are enjoyable experiences. Otherwise, people wouldn't continue to do the drugs. And they, after they've done it the first time, they go, "No, that was a pretty shit experience. I'm not going to have again." But so so if it's just numbing, why are they doing the experience? I think that's the other thing to understand is that they they are giving you a hit of neurotransmitters, pleasureful neurotransmitters that yeah. are absolutely massive, right? And that's part yeah. of it, yeah? So the process to, to kind of explain that and and the so that people understand that the process that happens, right, is the reason why people use alcohol and drugs more than one time is because it's fucking amazing, newsflash, <laughs> you know? Like... <laughs> I I will never be able to experience the same euphoric pleasure that I had on a bucket load of meth. <laughs> you know, like I'll never be able to get that again. Um, but that doesn't mean that someone it's not it's not necessarily the pleasure that creates their addiction. But what happens to people is that they do it again because it is a good experience and a pleasurable experience and they, they keep doing it over a year. But what I talk to people about is like the risk factors that come along with that. So if you think about even when you go down to the pub and have a, and have a drink, you don't process, once you've had three or four pots and you're a bit like tipsy or you're drunk or whatever, you're not emotionally kind of processing things in the same way you would if you weren't, um, you know, full of alcohol, right? Yeah. And it's the same thing with drugs and people don't realise this is what happens is that the more time that you're kind of high and on drugs, you are just naturally kind of numbed out and, and at the start you might not be using it to be numbed out but whilst you are numbed out, you have an argument with your wife or your husband or something negative in your, happens in your life or, or whatever it is. And those experiences kind of build up underneath the surface and they snowball, right? Yeah. And, and you may have started off using it for recreation, pleasure and fun because that's how I started. But by the time you get a year down the track of using it for fun, 
that you've had all these experiences in your life and you haven't processed things properly. And then they've, they have built up underneath the surface and they've created that void that then you need to put the drugs and alcohol back in, not to feel that anymore because you yeah. haven't dealt with it. Um, and then you start on the path of addiction and that's how it happens for a lot of people. Mm. Yeah, very look, interesting. And it's a, undoubtedly a very complex problem, right? And, and, and yeah. individualized. So uh, talking about that individualization, what, what from, from your experience and your learnings so far, what, what are some of the environmental and genetic influences on yours or my risk of becoming addicted if I'm exposed to some of these substances? Yeah, 100%. And, and this is a good conversation to have because um, the analogy that I use is that it's a little bit like um, a bonfire and petrol, right? If you have a bonfire burning in the backyard, um, you know, that can be a lot of fun and, you know, that is a good experience to have with your mates. But then if someone comes along and pours a bucket load of petrol on that fire, it's going to explode and potentially catch on, you know, on fire onto the house surrounding stuff and it's a real fucking problem right mm. um, so in that story alcohol and drugs represents uh the petrol um and the environmental stuff is the bonfire you know um and if you have the wrong uh, sorry the the environmental stuff is the petrol and the bonfire is alcohol and drugs and if you have the wrong environmental stuff going on or genetic stuff going on it yeah. sets the bonfire alight so Big things are, um, and I think we're starting to kind of get into this more of a society and the conversation is starting to happen with people like Russell Brand and stuff like that. But um, the big things are is uh, like trauma and negative emotional experience. That is huge. That is huge. Yeah. Um, stress, massive. Um, you know, poor diet. Um I'll talk to you a little bit about this in a second, but um, mental health issues and, and we're seeing a lot of stuff around like concussions now. And I know that that's right. been talked a lot about in the media in terms of mental health and the impacts that that's having on the brain. Um, we're seeing that with our clients in addiction, which is super interesting. There's lots of little things like that. But the other thing that I was going to say is that the best way for everyone to think about this as well is that addiction is really like on a spectrum right um and and distraction is the close cousin of addiction you know um right and you talked about dopamine and all those little things before like you know um, there's all movies about it now and stuff but every time you look at the social media and you get like little dopamine hits you know yeah, um yeah. and and so every time you're doing that you're in you're engaging in like an addictive habit and behavior and if you do that enough times with a lot of different things it could play out in food you know drugs and alcohol are the stigmatized one but you know there's food sugar sex um you know porn the the um the addiction around porn is such a massive one in today's society all that stuff um really starts to kind of set the scene for i guess larger addiction patterns to happen um but yeah yeah. And, and I think in concert with that, as you were talking about that, um, it just reminded me of a lady called um, um, Susan Greenfield, who yeah. is a, a baroness in the UK, no less, and, and also a professor. At, I think it's Oxford University, and yeah. she's a super sharp cookie. And, and I saw her give a presentation, which was just mind-blowing, and she's written a 
book mm. that, that's really, really interesting in this space called ID, The Quest for Identity in the 21st Century. But yeah. um, the, the thing I wanted to talk about is that she highlights that this world that we now live in, where there's a, a lot of immediacy and, and, it, and it's very emotional. Like you, you, you look at movies, my kids are watching movies the other night and it's just like, boom, bam, bam. Yeah. It's just, it's an overwhelm of the senses. And when I sit with my kids and, and watch old movies, they're like, this is really slow, dad, right? <laughs> and there's the immediacy of on, on your phones. Uh, she says that, that all of this and the food that we are eating, that is lots of sugar and fat and sugar layered upon fat. Think mm. about this for a second. You don't get that. Think about something in nature that has lots of fat and sugar. It just doesn't happen, right? And, yeah. But when you get those highly palatable foods, they've got sugar with fat and then some of these other emulsifiers and things that just give your brain a head of dopamine that it wasn't meant to deal with, right? But mm. her argument is that we are now creating brains that, are are very driven by emotion and and much less around thinking and and she's saying kids being on video games and constantly on phones and um, that is the complete opposite of reading a book because when you read a book mm. your brain has to go on a journey you've got to create this narrative you've got to create all these characters in your head and you're using your all of your frontal lobes whereas when you're sitting watching those movies or scrolling through it is the emotional part of the brain, which is becoming sensitized. And she, her research and brain scans have actually shown that the human brain has changed more in the last 50 years than it has in the last 10,000 years, right? And because of that environment that we're growing up in. So yeah. there's that generic environment. Then you talked about all those other environmental things, such as early life stress or trauma. We <laughs> And the genetic stuff is is really quite interesting. There's a little bit of, well, the research has been around for a while, particularly the DR4 receptor. So the, the gene that encodes for the dopamine receptor, certain yeah. variants of that predispose. Mm. We've got one of those variants. And, mm. and one of my kids does, the other one doesn't, right? Which is mm. quite interesting. But what do you, and also on that, we know that if your father was an alcoholic, and um, it's not just the genetics, but the epigenetics. If he was the alcoholic at the time of the conception, mm. we know that you will be born with less dopamine receptors, which means mm. you need more, right? And that's not it's epigenetic. It's like the software that runs the hardware. A hundred percent. I was going to actually ask you what you thought of some of that epigenetic stuff, because I find it fascinating. Um, and I think you know, in terms of addiction stuff, um, it's, it's really, really interesting in terms of the treatment side of it. When you, when you get people and you start to really just focus on the way that they, the metacognition that they have around themselves and, and the world and what they believe. And that's really where the transformation begins, you know? Um, yeah. I find it fascinating. I find it fascinating. Um, and, it's, it's, um, I, I think, you know, if you get in a room full of, um, we used to do this at the rehab, we'd have, you know, 
10 or 11 clients in and we'd say, hands up um, in this room, who has um, addiction or mental health issues in their family? Um, and pretty much 100% of the people would put their hands up, you know. Um, so there's a couple of things that you can pull out of that. But the, the thing that I actually put out of, pull out of it, and it's the reason why I get so excited when we help people to change, is um, really like it could be that genetic that genetic thing that gets passed down. But I think it's a lot of like the unconscious behaviors and um, the unconscious belief systems that get kind of transferred on when you're in that early developmental stage, learning um, as a child that kind of imprints that software into your brain that like kind of runs the programs, i.e. your behavior that gets you the manifestation of your life. Um, and, and that's why it's so cool when you help someone to break those addictive patterns and um, change it in their life, you're actually knowing that you're probably saving generations to come in their family because you're breaking that cycle and the pattern um, that exists within their family and the behaviours. And as you said, like kind of the software that gets passed along, you know, it's mm. really interesting. It's it, really- it is. And it, so there's a couple of comments that I have on, on that. Matt, I got really interested in, in this from a, a, a neuroscience perspective, but also from the epigenetic perspective. There's a, there's a mate of mine, um, and, and, and I won't tell you his name, but he, he grew up in Glasgow uh, in hardcore Glasgow in the 1970s. His, his mother wow. and father were both heroin addicts. And, yeah. and he, says he remembers coming home from school and, mm. and, and his little brother um, be, being at home and, and having to turn his, his little brother's chair around because oh. his mom and dad were shooting up heroin in the corner of the room, right? Wow. Now, I, this guy went on to become an officer in the Royal Marines Commandos, um, yep. which is the hardest military training, officer training anywhere in the world of any of the regular forces globally. Yep. And his little brother went on to become a heroin addict, right? Yeah. Um, and and so the part of this, I think, the whole epigenetic stuff. Um, it, you um, you kind of hit the nail on the head with that. The early programming. And um, mm. Amit Goswami is a a theoretical physicist, quantum physicist, and philosopher. Um, who, at Oregon University, and he says, we do not perceive reality directly. We perceive reality through the mirror of memory, right? Yeah, wow. And, and, and it's a beautiful statement because, you know, you're born with this, this, this potential, all this potential you bring. You've got 200 billion neurons when you're born. By yeah. the age of four or five, you've lost 100 billion through a process called synaptic pruning. So you're mm-hmm. learning rules about how the world actually works. And and if we're being exposed through your parents and, and, and other people around the house to certain behaviors, they're creating unconscious imprinting on your brain, right? Yeah. Now, the, the, and then, you, you know, your diet, all of those things, your physical activity, that all has a, a huge influence. And, and so I think the epigenetic part of this is, is huge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, 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 the nice side of that is that we know that the human brain is not fixed, right? That's right? That that we can. So, for instance, a lot of people don't realize this. Every time you eat something, it's affecting the expression of your genes. Yeah. Every time 
you exercise, it affects the expression of your genes. If you have a day sitting on your arse, it affects the, the, the gene expression. So we are constantly tweaking the software um, through our lifestyle, like exposure to stress switches mm. on a whole heap of genes and switches on a whole heap of others. But things like optimism and um, ha- having an optimistic um, mindset um, is positive on gene expression as well. And we know contributes to, to longevity and a whole heap of other stuff. Mm. Um, so I think that that path that you're on, looking at the whole individual, looking at their environment around them, and then bringing in a whole heap of tools um, to mm-hmm. actually use um, is definitely the right pathway rather than just going, you've got a disease. That's right. And and like, like what you said, like, and that's why I love talking to people like you about this because you can really put the science to it because um, a lot of this came just out of my fascination of reading all this stuff and experimenting on myself and things like that. But um that's why I don't like to call it a disease because we know that the brain can change. You know, we know that it, it is, you know, the neuroplasticity, it can be shaped and molded. And, um, you know, we, we do this really interesting exercise with people um, to really try and focus. And, you know, you were talking a little bit about before, like shifting your identity, you know, like really in addiction treatment stuff, People are completely unconscious to it, but what they don't they don't realize what we're actually taking them through is a process of becoming conscious. Um, and what that means is not, you know, transcending into the universe and Byron Bay with hippie pants, but it it, <laughs> it, it, it means becoming so aware of yourself on like another level that you're actually in tune to those unconscious programs that are running in the back of your head because that's i've found that's actually what drives people's addiction right and we'll go through a process like i've had people that want to like fight me and then like in a session because i'm i'm the only way that you can break through that is by kind of pushing up on their like walls and their barriers um, yeah. and, and they'll be like nearly wanting to fight me and then you just break through and then they just break down because they realise what the stories that they're telling themselves about their life and then we take them through a process of reimagining that and I guess you could call it like meditation but um, it's it's like an active kind of visualisation process of, you know, who you want to be, what the programs are that you want to run in your life. And I, and it sounds kind of crazy. People probably would raise an eyebrow, but I, it, I've literally had people sitting in front of me that have been doing drug and alcohol treatment for 15 years. And I'm not saying that I'm amazing that I'm doing this. It's, they're, they're going through the process and, and they just kind of can't get it. They've done all the different rehabs that you can think of. Um, but they then actually something kind of clicks and they have the drop in their perspective and they they change their identity in that moment. And you can almost see like the colour and the life and their shoulders roll back and just things change right before your eyes. And then they're just like a completely different person, you know? Um, and, and that's really where I think if we're dealing with people at the pointy end of addiction that we have to get to um, is going really deep on that side of things and going, well, what's actually driving everything yeah. here? What's what are the, the belief systems? What are the underlying 
the stuff that's going on. Yeah. So, yeah. so on that topic about rehab, you, you you've experienced rehab, you yeah. run rehab and um, do, do, does it actually work and how effective is it? And, and, and are there different levels of rehab in terms of their effectiveness? So whatever order you want. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good question. Um, and again, it's, um, it's, it's something that um, blows me away. Right. So if you, oh, I've got to be honest, if you look at like, the results that we get from the traditional rehab system that we have at the moment, um, and you apply that to any other medical field, there would be uproar. People would be up in arms and it would be highly unacceptable. <laughs> because Other because, than weight loss, mate. The weight loss industry oh. thrives on a 97% <laughs> failure rate. So that's right. Like, and it's and it's it's fair enough if it's a hard problem and, and you know, um, it's a hard thing to fix, but there's there's not much innovation happening in, right. in the space and it just drives me insane, you know. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I got out of working in and operating traditional rehab um, centres or rehab programs where you go and you stay in a place for 90 days to 12 months um, because I just largely think that it kind of doesn't work and it's, and it's really counterproductive for 95% of people that enter those wow. facilities. Um, because if you actually think about everything that we've been talking about, which is connection, reintegration, um, you know, participating in a nice environment, if you go to rehab, you're kind of doing the opposite to that. And you might get all this great therapy and support and help, but you're just in a bubble. Um, and we see it so much that people then leave those settings and use again. And often horrible things can happen because then they're fucking tolerant. They have no tolerance and, you know, all that stuff. And there can be overdoses and oh, it's right. terrible. So, so I think, so, so no, I don't love the way that the rehab system is structured and I think it has to be reimagined. I'm not against residential rehab, like a hundred percent there needs to be residential rehab, but it just feels like we try and fix everybody with a residential rehab program where I think the evidence probably suggests that maybe 1% of people need to do that residential program. And, wow. and, and, and then after that, it probably needs to be a lot shorter and it needs to be, they still need to do the intensive kind of work and therapy side of things, mm -hmm. but they need to be, um, they, they need to be doing that within an integrated society and provided with, you know, opportunities and facilities to be able to do that. And that goes into the broader conversation of like the systems and um, the stigma and the way that's set up, like it's easier said than done, but yeah, I think it has to be kind of reimagined. So there's probably a few different levels. Um, you know, the, the thing that I'm really keen on doing with people now, the best way to think about it is in phases, I think. So in terms of rehabilitation, I think there's like the intensive physical stage, yeah. which needs to be taken care of in the, in the first maybe 
two weeks for most people, longest four weeks where you're detoxing essentially. Right. Um, but as I said before, that's kind of the smallest part of it. And then, and then I think after that, there has to be, um, you know, the intensive support and um, therapy and coaching, which focuses on all the stuff that we just spoke about going kind of deep and getting to the root cause of why you're doing this um, and having that shifted and changed. And that can be, you know, I think that should be for a good amount of time. You know, as you said, I always use that analogy of fitness. You know, it's it shouldn't be a 30-day boot camp, you know. Mm-hmm. It's a yeah. it's a lifestyle change. We should be teaching yeah. people how to do differently. Um, and hence why our program is called connection-based living, because we're not treating someone over an event where we're showing them a new way to live, a new way to operate. <laughs> um mm-hmm because it has to be a lifestyle change. So, um, and, and then um, there's obviously all the stuff that goes into it as well in like the third phase, which is kind of getting your life back on track and, you know, tapping into what makes humans happy. So, you know, purpose, meaning, all yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and yeah, it's, it's really interesting when you start applying that to people and, and everybody wants something different. Some people want individuals, some people want a group thing, you know, some people want an online thing, um, you know, different things work for different people. And I, and I will say, I can't remember the exact figure. I had a podcast not long ago with um, one of Australia's leading professors in um, the addiction space, um, Professor Steve Allsop out of Curtin University. I can't remember the exact figure, but they, they've done research on this for years, but there's this massively high stat of, they call it um, self-remission. So, mm-hmm. so people giving up addictions and changing their life without engaging in any help seeking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that kind of, again, speaks to, you know, the Rat Park stuff, the changing yeah. lifestyle all that. Um, and I think if we can start to set up those environments for people, we'll start to see better results. Yeah. Mm. Um, just a, a, a question that just came out of the, the blue in my head as you were talking about the whole, the connection and the, the rewriting your story and the whole self identity mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've dabbled in drugs in my time. I smoked a fair bit of pot at uni, took LSD, went traveling for a year, came back and all my mates, mates were listening to shit music and doing funny dancing and taking <laughs> ecstasy, right? And it's not something I really get into. But um, w- one thing I did do that was a pretty amazing experience was, um, um, and it was around 20 years ago, in deep in the Amazon, was, was take ayahuasca with shamans. Oh, um, wow. And also um, San Pedro cactus with a, a Peruvian medicine woman. And... <laughs> The reason I bring it up is that in both places, there were addicts and there was one, there was a heroin addict that mm. the, 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 um, the Amazon lady, the, the, uh, the Peruvian medicine woman, she mm. was, was treating him and, and there were alcoholics in, in the other place. What, one of the places where I took ayahuasca and, mm. and they have very high success rates and 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 that and and some of the stuff you know coming out about um some of the mental health issues treated with ketamine psilocybin those sorts of things that what they all have in common 
is a bit of a reset in the brain. And and what I can say about the personal experience about the shaman guided hallucinogens in the Amazon mm. is that your idea of self and connection to others mm. is changed forever when you go on those guided journeys with the shamans. Um, yeah. Any thoughts or you had any experience with any of that stuff? So I, 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 I love that you brought that up. And I think it's interesting that you make that, um, you know, that connection between the two, you know, the kind of self-actualization and, and the way it, in which it shifts your perspective. Um, yeah. In, in some of the um, government um, um, committees that I'm a part of and, you know, being around researchers and funding grants and stuff like that, there is some, you know, they're trying to put the science behind it um, with the ketamine and all that stuff, which is really, really exciting because, Look, I don't really believe there's any silver bullets out there for anything, but I think I, I really do have the sense that it's going to make a huge impact um, in terms of success rates for people being able to heal and, and you know, change their, change their lives because, because it changes your percep perceptions and connection to yourself. Um, and I think for me, from talking to people and going through it myself, is that that's kind of where the 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 root of the addiction lies, um, and and that's what keeps you going back, you know, because you can you can take anyone, and we see this again with rehabs all the time. You can take anyone out of their environment for a long period of time, twelve months, but they'll often just go straight back to what yeah. they're doing because it's so ingrained in their identity and their belief system structure about themselves, um, and yeah. When I've taken um, mushrooms, it's been all recreationally and all, and all that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, that's what it does. It, it gives you, you know, obviously you get the euphoric feeling, but it does. It gives you that sense of like trust, um, and um, you do feel a sense of kind of almost like safety. Um, yeah. And and I think if it can have the signs put to it and have um, you know that kind of more um, socially acceptable um, framework put on it, I think it's going to be very, very helpful. And, and one thing I always say to people, you know, because, because I really believe that things have to be evidence-based, you know, I'm not into like Scientology coming in and if it works for people, I guess it works, but you know, I'm not into that and like, you know, just crazy kind of, shit with crystals or whatever but well maybe that's not even crazy either but uh, i'm into i'm into evidence based yeah. practices but i think what happens sometimes in society is that we become evidence limited not evidence based you know and we and we become scared to um innovate and really dive deep and let the smart people in the world do the research and uncover the truth that's that's kind of staring us in the face so um yeah it's really interesting and when you really it, the the thing that makes addiction so complicated um is it's not really a health issue it's a it's a fucking political issue you know um and there was lots of research and science being done on you know um hallucinogens back in the 70s yeah. but because they were demonized um mm -hmm through all the recreational use and stuff, um, 
yeah, that stopped and really halted our progress. As and, and there was so much really good research. And, and I think we need to just underscore for people who are listening to this. We're, we're not talking about just going out with your mates and taking mushrooms. And <laughs> <That's right. laughs> our therapist sessions, right? So they are, they are trained physicians or trained health professionals. They're yeah. isolating psilocybin. And, and that's probably shown the most promise. And, and they're actually guiding people on a, on a journey and, and yeah. doing remarkable things in, in de, and uh, treatment uh, resistant depression and, mm. and other sorts of things. And I know there's stuff in uh, around addiction and I know the ayahuasca church in Brazil uh, has <laughs> got, and it's actually a church where they use ayahuasca because they've been doing it for 3000 years. Wow. Amazing success in treating drug addicts and, and alcoholics, right? Yeah by the shaman and in this case um a, a trained health professional that That's helps right. people to to guide them through that journey and and really pull the meaning out of it which i i think is pretty key and and just to put it in perspective when you say that because because i do understand that like you know like people that are not um kind of involved or haven't been around any kind of drugs it probably sounds crazy what we're talking about right but to kind of put it in perspective, if you go to, if it's for addiction treatment um, or if you have like some kind of mental health issues, there's these things called seracles, right? And they're antipsychotics and they they um, hand them out like lollies, you know? Mm -hmm. Sometimes they give them to um, meth users because meth users can't sleep, no shit, once they stop using. Um, and, they, and they're like, these things, Paul, you take them, and they will like, they're like elephant tranquilizers. Like you will just like fall to the ground. They're so powerful. Um, they're highly powerful, like mood stabilizers that are given out in a pill form. And there's lots of those given out to lots of people for lots of different things. Um, and that's kind of seen as okay. But then if you start talking to these things that have social stigmas attached to them, it yeah. freaks people out. And the... I was listening to an interview with that guy, Carl Hart on Joe Rogan the other day, the, the, the hypocrisy around different substances is unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, like we, someone hurts their back and we give them pills that are stronger than heroin, oh, <laughs> you know, you just need to look at the United States and, and addiction and how it, it, it is just destroying communities in the United States. Right. It's, yeah crazy um but but these are painkillers that's right. people are on for a sore back it's mad that's right but but don't but but don't smoke weed because you're a bad person you know it's kind of it's it's really it's really funny when when you look at it and you know if we can start having that more mature conversation around it i, I think it'll do uh, a lot of good uh, i can i ask you quickly yes. how how many years ago was it when you went and did that um, experience. I would, I would love to do that for therapeutical purposes because I've never. So that was um, two thousand and one. Was my first shamanic journey, and then, um, and I did it with an Italian guy in in Ecuador, yep. and, and then we 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 arranged to 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 meet. And we both said, look, we we want an adventure. Let's yep. go on an adventure, and and it was maybe a, a year later that I found a social anthropologist. It was called El Mundo Magico, yeah. uh, a, social, a Spanish social anthropologist guy who um, ran trips um, once a year um, with just a few people on it 
to go and visit the Matses Indians deep in the Amazon, like 2,000 kilometers from the next road. So wow. I followed Giovanni, and I had just finished reading a book called Amazon Beaming, which was about the Matses Indians that they thought had been wiped out in the 1920s, but they'd actually just retreated into the Amazon jungle. And, and a National Geographic researcher found a tribe in the, in the middle of the Amazon in 1969. Right. Wow. And very slowly they started to become a culturized, but they still lived in the jungle. So me and Giovanni went, right, we're going on that. And it was it was three weeks deep into the Amazon and, and we had a shaman with us and, and we were taking ayahuasca. Um, in, and I mean, deep in the jungle, but <laughs> the shamans who were doing, you know, they've been doing this for 3000 years. And and yeah. I said to the shaman through the translator and um, how ayahuasca um it's a vine banisteros capri is the name so it's a vine that grows but the active ingredient in it um i think it's an alkalite is inhibited by an enzyme in our stomach but yeah. when you take it with the chikunya leaf that and um, then inhibits the enzyme that inhibits the the active potential and releases all of the part of the the ayahuasca now i i thought about this and i thought what what is the 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 possibility that they came across this combination by chance yeah. and if you look at the amount of millions of plants in the amazon it's going to be billions to one and yeah. I, i'm like how did they know and i asked the shaman how do you know and he says the plants tell us so the yeah. plants are their teachers so they have a massively different view of the world than we do they don't see themselves as separate from the jungle they see themselves as part of the ecosystem and that plants actually teach us. And it's super hard for people who've been raised in a Western environment to get their head around. Right. But yeah. um, I mean, that was a pretty magical experience for both me and Giovanni. And now there's a lot of ayahuasca tourism and there's a lot of, of, of um, pseudo shamans who aren't really shamans that just yeah. mix up the brew. And I even know that you can get it in Australia. And somebody said to me, we can go and, and do it in Australia. And there's this guy who does it. And I'm like, I, I, I have no interest in taking that stuff <laughs> in the Amazon yeah. with a shaman, right? Because yeah. that experience for me was, was pretty magical. And, and that's a lot, that's a super interesting story. I love that. But the thing I was interested in as well is so in, that's in 2001. Like, how did people around you react when you told them that this is what you were going to go and do? You know what I mean? Like, I, I didn't tell very many people. Um, yeah. and it, is that my, because you knew you would cop heat for it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably because probably. we went, you know, we were the amazon we didn't have a sat phone we discussed it we could have got a sat phone but we actually said we, we you know what the explorers didn't have a sat phone right now yeah. if i was doing it now with two kids i'd probably make a different decision but yeah we wanted to go on, on an adventure my wife carly knew where i was yeah um, but she didn't know where i was at any given time right um yeah. But it, it, it was it was a pretty magical experience. It was hardcore, deep in the Amazon for three weeks. Yeah. Um, but it, it was pretty cool just to see how these guys lived in them when we went and visited the Matses village. And, uh, and you know, we, we went through a sapo ceremony, which involves frog poison, which is a, a conversation for another day. <laughs> but, but, yeah, that was a pretty amazing experience. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing, right? Like, imagine you know, you're someone, this is what I find really interesting. You know, you, you're someone that's highly successful. Um, you know, you measure you up to any kind of other successful Westerner 
um, that's just purely not had any of those other experiences and you wouldn't be seen as insane or anything like that. But as soon as maybe in 2001, if you brought up a story like that, people would be like, wow, this guy's kind of yeah, fucking out there, you know. <laughs> this um, guy's going to lunch. I think some people then, still think that. <laughs> and, and, and just for everybody listening, like that's kind of what is constantly at play when we're trying to get different innovative, helpful treatments to people is that or we're trying to get funding off government for you know, services that we know are going to save people's lives is that we're not just kind of fighting this battle of presenting evidence that makes sense. We're fighting these kind of societal narratives, these stigmas, and it just it just makes it so hard and challenging. Um, and the other thing I was going to say that's interesting, I, I don't know if it's completely related, but in our program, the other kind of space that I've gone heavily into after my wife kind of fixed me um, she's a she's a naturopath um, and she she taught me all this stuff about the gut and we've been doing this with our patients in the program and you you, sp- you sparked my um, memory with this when you said it was kind of related to some, like an en- enzyme in your guts yeah. but um, yeah we we do like microbiome testing with people when they come in yeah. Um, and we go through and um, Holly Sinclair, her name is the women's series, if anyone wants to check her out. And she goes through all their results with them and, and stuff like that. And it's amazing, amazing when we start kind of shifting that. Again, it's not an instant gratification thing. It takes a bit of time to kill off the negative bacteria and all those things. Um, but if people stick to it and do do it usually over three to six months with us, they come back and they say to us, like I actually cannot believe that I feel this good um, as just like normal without taking drugs, you know, like their biochemical kind of reactions to the world completely shift, which is so important, which nobody looks at when people come into addiction, uh, into treatment for addiction. You know, they've been, I've been using meth for years, just smashing my dopamine systems to bits and changing the biochemistry production in my body. And, and the only thing that I did was talk therapies. You know, I never paid attention to the food that I ate, um, my, my holistic health. um, Yeah. Like my, (laughs) the exercise that I embarked on all that stuff, you know, and that's such a huge part that we never talk about. So yeah. Really. And because it leads into the last question I was going to ask you, I, I actually, but the microbiome, piece is, is, is really interesting what a lot of people don't realize is that um more than 90 percent of your serotonin is produced in your gut not in that's your gut, right. right and that's and that, right. That we are not just an ecosystem we are a super ecosystem you've got way more cells for gut bacteria in your body than you have for yourself and we know now we don't just feed ourselves directly we feed our gut microbiome and they feed us and the mm-hmm. composition of your microbiome can affect your mental health. It can affect a whole heap of disease processes. And we look at, at fecal transplants where, you know, you get a big syringe of someone's poo up your jacksey can actually <laughs> change disease um, in, in animals and now in humans. So it's really powerful. Yeah. What, what, so two questions. Do you know who you use for the microbiome testing? Is, is uh, it it's... Um... I can't think of it off the top of my head. It's a place in uh, Armadale. 
All right, that's, um, that's yeah. cool. The, the, the question I was going to ask you, the, the sort of last question before we wrap up, because I, I could talk about this for days, but we do need to wrap up at some stage. <laughs> so I'm going to give you uh, a blank check, right? And yeah. say, Jack, you're going to create the best rehab program in the world. And money... You're going you're no gonna to have to... You're going to have to... You're going to have to... You're going to have to say that again. The Zoom universe had one of its little okay. um, brain farts. Sorry. So, so I, I, here's a thought experiment. I, I'm going to give you a blank check, right? And yep. Rehab program in the world for addiction. What does it look like? I know I've put... No, no it's, good, it's good, but I got most of it. The, the Zoom... The Zoom universe just cut out for like okay let me, five let me, seconds while you're talking. What third time? Let me, let me ask again, right? Um, so I'm I'm going to give you a blank check, yeah. And I'm going to remove all barriers, all the political stuff, uh, so you are able to create the world's best rehab program in your eyes. What does that program look like? What are the, some of the elements of that program? Great question. Jeez, no fucking pressure. Um, yeah, just a little curveball, Jack, off you go. No, no, I love it. So it would have like a first a first phase where people have the ability to detox properly, um, but in that they get the full medical service. So they get their bloods done. Um, they get, you know, um, access to medication and, and doctors to help them all around with their physical health. Um, so it's a perfect world. So all their, uh, all their um, uh, social factors are all good. So they have housing and all that. So that's, that's yep. fine. Um, but then what they would do is that, I would actually bring them out and we would do um, like some healing practices. I must say I would want to incorporate some of the plant medicine stuff into it because I've heard so many people that I know that have done it like you that have had addiction problems off grid and they talk about how amazing it was for them. I'd probably like to see some of the evidence come a bit more up to speed so we use it properly, but that would be lab that's part of your thing that's doing the research right that's right that's right <laughs> so so they would come out but what we would focus on for two to four weeks is purely um on the underlying stuff that we've all been taught that we've been talking about which is whether they have any traumas their identity belief systems all that sort of stuff um and i think that would be done you know in a one-on-one -on -one environment um, and they would be getting taught how to live like a good holistically healthy life, right? Mm -hmm. And then to, to finish that up at the end after that four or five or six weeks where they go through that journey and they're living well and they're being shown how to train and exercise and stuff. And I think you would, you would enjoy this a little bit, but then I would actually put them through... <laughs> Some maybe not as extreme as the military training that you've done, um, but I would actually put them through some kind of program, and maybe you would be there directing it and coming up with it that challenges people 
like physically and mm. mentally a little bit once they're stable yeah. so that they can learn to build resilience and learn how to regulate their emotional state because yeah. that is so critical in just in life terms, um, I think, but just really in terms of recovery is once you actually leave treatment is being, you know, there's this old school saying, which I love, you know, kind of harden the soft bits and soften the hard bits. Mm. So there's not enough work done on hardening the soft bits, you know, yeah, um, yeah. and I'm not talking about berating people or, or putting them through buds or anything like that, but, but challenging them physically so that they can learn to kind of build that emotional and mental strength to then, you know, kind of push through and achieve what they want to achieve in life and, and understand how they work and, and deal, you know, with themselves in a crisis. Um, so, and I think by doing that, you know, they get, they get everything. They, they get like the physical detox they're taken care of medically. They work on the core issues of their addiction and they're actually um, educated about what a healthy lifestyle looks like, but then they actually get to build um, some resilience and just just learn some some life kind of facts that you need mm. to be able to push through and do to to be successful, whatever that kind of means to you, you know, because life fucking happens. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and 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 Jack, given that you've invited me to be the director of that program, I think what, <laughs> a critical part of the program for me would be would be exercise. Once once, as you say, yeah. they're stable is doing regular exercise with increasing amounts of intensity um mm -hmm. for instance number one exercise uh, actually creates all the building blocks for neuroplasticity and yeah. and a rehab treatment a neuroplasticity program right it's a it's about yeah. retraining their brain so i think that would be critical I think they would be getting um, supplements. Um, there, there's a supplement that I'm a big fan of called Hardy's that is actually designed for the brain and nervous system. And, and if people want to check back when I um, in, uh, interviewed um, uh, this uh, New Zealand professor, um, Julia Rutledge, she talked about all the experiments she's done with these supplements on people with mental health issues and how they were better than the drugs right so th those supplements to support the brain and nervous system they would be giving food they would be in a stimulating environment i would be doing um cold exposure um every single day in the terms of 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 cold showers ice bath to build up that stress tolerance and and the hurry i'm interested in is the this cross tolerance that if you expose yourself to more intense exercise and cold exposure, how it actually transfers into other areas of your life. And, and I think at the same time, we'd be educating them on, on neuroscience on how the brain works um, and a course in stoic philosophy. And then yeah. at the end of it, uh, as part of that, we'd be helping them to identify their, their key values, hopefully a bit of purpose, but we would then put them in traineeships where they were doing jobs that were in concert with their values so that they actually felt mm. that they were contributing and that there was a sense of purpose. I, I love that. I love that. A hundred percent. So everything, it's funny you say all that, right? Everything that you just said, that's like in the, in the program that we run, which we do it in the style of a coaching program um, format we do pretty much all of that, you know? Um, 
<laughs> and exactly like what you said in terms of um, the aligning people to their values, I think that is such a key that kind of goes missed so mm-hmm. often, you know, is that, again, we, we talk to people about, well, go and do this, go and do that, but they don't actually fucking care about any of that. <laughs> they really want to do this, you know, and if you could just get them doing that, their life would be better. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, Jack, look, th- this has been awesome. It's gone on a lot longer than anticipated, but that was just because it's such a cool conversation. Um, <laughs> how can people find out more about you? So, I know you run programs. Talk a little bit about that, and if, if people have issues, how they can come to it. I know you also do talks to corporates. I've seen you do it, and, and it's bloody eye-opening, particularly, I think, for corporates with um, people who have teenagers and... and- mm. How can people find out more about these things and any other stuff that you're doing? Because I know you've got a number of balls in the air. Yeah, so so all the things that we do are in the alcohol and drug space. Um, the uh, it's, it's almost, we call it like a modern-day holding company. It's called the Within Collective. Um, and then we have a number of different brands under that. So, um, you know, I do a lot of stuff with, like, public health policy, um, with governments, we do work with corporates more in that um, workspace. We do the treatment program and we also have a bit of a, a, like a media company where we tell stories about people and try and break down some stigma. So the best place to probably find me is with that. It's called Real Drug Talk. If you just punch that into Google or into social media, we'll come up. We're pretty active on all of them. Um, and uh, the treatment program is called Connection Based Living, um, which is you can just punch that into Google as well, and it will come up. And yeah, we've got a few different things that we do, so just reach out and um, holler there. And and just on that, it's it's interesting you say about the corporates, Paul. We we've um, we've started to do a lot of stuff on LinkedIn, um, and we've actually been kind of I feel like we're almost like uncovering all these problems um with mm. professionals because you know talking about stigma they don't come out and talk about mm. issues that are going on in their life because they don't want to be pigeonholed fair enough um and yeah we, we've been doing going into organizations <laughs> that like big organizations that have addiction problems with employees or in their culture and stuff and and doing like internal treatment programs and stuff like that so um, yeah, the unfortunate thing that I've learned is that this impacts so many different people. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the best thing I would say to anyone is that if you feel like there might be something going wrong, it doesn't mean that you have to go and check it into rehab for 90 days. Um, but just reach out and give us a holler and just start the conversation. And you might do something straight away. You might do something two years down the track. But just just kind of reaching out and saying something is is the best thing that you can do. So connection-based living or real drug talk is the best. Mate, awesome. For somebody who um, met you years ago as you were just starting out on this journey, uh, really cool to see how far you've come and, and uh, to get you on my podcast now that I've finally sorted my bloody admin out. <laughs> Thanks, mate. And, uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to have you on ours too as we uh, opened up the doors into some of those interesting conversations. So appreciate it, mate. Cool stuff. Thank you. Okay. That was another episode of Real Drug Talk. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, again, if you or a loved one needs help, um, you can 
contact us at www.connectionbasedliving.com.au. That's www.connectionbasedliving.com.au. That's our treatment programs. Just give us a call, send us a message, email, whatever it is. And um, if we can't help, we'll point you in the right direction. Um, that interview was Paul, with Paul Taylor from the Brain Body Mind um, Institute. I highly recommend that you go and check that guy out. He's amazing, can help in a lot of different areas with all the stuff that they do. And at the very least, follow his podcast. Stay safe, people. Have a good love day. Um, again, hope you're listening to this on Monday, not on Sunday, um, and you're enjoying your day. And we'll be vibing in your ears again soon. Peace. <laughs>